Welcome. I think I think we'll get started. I think we'll get started now. You can feel free to uh, keep eating, but I want to give the speaker enough time to uh, make a full presentation. So we'll get started. It's my pleasure to introduce uh, Leonardo Villaron uh, as the second speaker in the 2009 Islam and uh, Democracy series which is sponsored, obviously, by the Mershon Center, but in addition by the Middle East Studies uh, Center, the Honors and Scholars Program, and the Department of uh, Political Science. Um, Leo is a director of the Center for African Studies, as well as associate professor of political science at the University of Florida. His research specializes on contemporary African politics, focusing in particular on Islamic questions, so fitting that our theme today is Islam and democracy. This is his subject in French West Africa, in Senegal in particular, but also in Mali and uh, Niger. Uh, Leo is the author of Islamic Society and State Power in Senegal and The Fate of Africa's Democratic Experiments. Uh, he taught for two years as a Fulbright Senior Scholar at the Université Sheikh Anta Diop in Dakar, Senegal. Uh, and, uh, and, and perhaps uh, he's a bit of a democracy promotion person, uh, which uh, I also am, because it says here on his vita that he has led seminars on civic education and democracy in rural Mali. And just imagine, uh, you know, the democratization program comes to rural Mali. Workshops on democracy and the role of legislatures in Chad and Burkina Faso, uh, and a seminar on consensus building uh, in, uh, in Cote d'Ivoire. Uh, in 2007, he was named a Carnegie Scholar by the Carnegie Corporation of New York for research on a project entitled Negotiating Democracy in Muslim Contexts, Political Liberalization and Religious Mobilization in the West African Sahel. Uh, and that's his topic uh, today. Uh, please join me in welcoming uh, Leo Villas. At the press a button here, right? Okay, is that on? Is that working? Good. Thank you, Bill. Th um, all that must have been on a website somewhere. <laughs> all that information. Is that, is that resonating? Is that, does that sound okay? Okay, I'm sort of hearing an echo myself. Um, okay, so thank you very much. Thank you to all of you for coming, but a special thanks to Bill Little for inviting me. It's a great pleasure uh, to get to, not only to talk to you, but to visit with him. Um, I had the, one of my best academic boondoggles ever was to be invited to a conference in Indonesia with Bill Little, after which we wandered around in various sites in Indonesia with a few Indonesian colleagues talking about Islam and democracy at the complete other end of the Muslim world from where I work. And it was, uh, it was a fascinating sort of experience. And so I'm very grateful to Bill for that. It's also a great pleasure to see a number of friends and former colleagues, or former classmates and colleagues and whatnot in the room. So thank you all for, for coming. Um, I'm, as, as Bill said, then I'm a political scientist and I work in Muslim West Africa or Francophone West Africa on questions of religion and democracy. I'm very pleased especially to be able to talk today about uh, Africa and about Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, I'm sure it's not the case in this class, in, in, in Dr. Little's class, but in general I find that uh, Sub-Saharan Africa is almost completely ignored in the very intense contemporary debate about Islam and democracy or about Islam and politics, right? Um, I was just last week at a conference in New York on Islam and the Muslim world, etc., and virtually no, everyone said, oh, Africa, yeah, right, there are a bunch of countries in Africa too, you know, almost completely ignoring this. Um, I'm going to try to, I'm, I'm not going to, uh, there, 
Um, I'm not going to read you a lot of text, but I have some various images and slides and photographs to sort of illustrate various points that I hope will also entertain you a bit. But just to make the point, right, if you look at, you look at Africa, that's sort of a map that roughly sketches out the portions of the continent which are Muslim majority or significant Muslim minority. You can see it's a huge part of the continent. This table that you probably can't read, but you'll see there's a number of countries. This is not including the five Arab-speaking North African countries. A number of countries, uh, nine in fact, that are predominantly Muslim countries of 85 or you know, between 85 and 100% Muslim. There are another set of about 10 that are at least 30 or 40, sometimes 50 or 60% Muslim, so very significant minorities, and then a whole bunch more with small or significant Muslim minorities. If you look at West, specifically in West Africa, you can see um, there are four, sorry, six countries that are you know, above, those, those numbers are all guesses, but 85 or 90% Muslim, which include the three that I'm gonna talk about today. Um, so, my, there's a map of West Africa. My current research then, this past year, as B, uh, Bill just said, I, was, I had the good fortune to be on sabbatical in 07-08 and spent um, most of the year back and forth between three countries, Senegal, Mali, and Niger. And I, if, you know, for those of you not familiar with it, Senegal here in the extreme west, Mali and Niger just moving east. Um, they look, uh, Senegal looks much smaller, and obviously territory-wise it is, but in population terms it's about the same since Mali and Niger are largely uh, desert. Um, so these are the three countries I'll be focusing on. I'm now writing about this project, and I very much welcome the chance to answer questions and discuss. Um, dealing with these three countries and trying to paint the big picture of how the debates about Islam and democracy have played out means that I'm going to paint in broad strokes this picture. Um, I, so it won't be too nuanced, but I'd be very happy to discuss details uh, about, uh, about any of these ca uh, cases or to answer questions because I'm well immersed into them, I think, at the moment. Um, the, the, the interest of these three countries is obviously they're, they're very little known, as I said in general, about sub-Saharan Africa outside the region, very little known in debates about Islam, and yet I think extremely um, instructive or potentially very instructive for the debate about the relationship between Islam or Muslim societies and democracy. There's obviously a huge interest, a huge debate right now. We have courses like one I just finished teaching and this course here on the future, the political future of the Muslim world and specifically on the question of the future of democracy. And I think it's fair to say there's a small academic industry in writing books on Islam and democracy, Islam and politics, the future of democracy in the Muslim world, etc. A lot of that writing, um, both by Westerners, but also by journalists, and also by Muslim scholars themselves, poses it, frames the question of debate as one of compatibility. Is Islam compatible with democracy? And there are various efforts to try to sketch out some characteristics of what's supposed to be a democracy and some things about Islam and see whether they match up or not. And a lot of it turns into these sort of gymnastics, trying to say, well, you know, Islam has this, con uh, this concept of consultation, shura, and it's, you know, it's the importance of consultation, so that's sort of like holding elections, so if you think of it that way, it works, etc. Um, there, of course, others say, oh, Islam has these concepts and democracy has these, and those are incompatible, right? So both among Muslim scholars and among Westerners you, and, uh, and academics, right, you have both, both ends of the spectrum in that debate. People find it compatible or incompatible. Um, now, my approach, and I'm sure it's one that I share, I know I share it with Dr. Little and, and no doubt others, is, is that, and just to summarize it, is that that, that kind of an approach of asking what are, the, what are the points of compatibility or similarity may be important for political activists if you are a demo democracy promoter or if you're a, a Muslim anti-democrat for some reason or something of the sort. But they're not particularly useful as an approach to try to study the, the, the concept of, um, sorry, to study this question scientifically of what the relationship is. 
Um, in fact, both democracy and Islam, like all religions, I think, are fundamentally contested concepts. And so you can only answer that question contingently and contextually. In any given place, you can say, how is it that people are thinking about Islam and thinking about democracy, and how is that, how's that working out, right? And so I'm, I'm skipping sort of this whole, I mean, I'm just skimming it, but I'll be glad to come back and answer it. But let me just say that the, the, way, the alternative approach that I'm sort of taking in this work is to say, rather than what are the points of compatibility or incompatibility, is to start empirically and to say, what are the issues that become politically important? That is, what are things that get debated and get fought out and get debated, uh, get discussed? And what are the terms of the discussion and, and of confrontation and of debate when you talk about democracy in a Muslim context? That is, when you have a Muslim country and you say, we're going to democratize, what are the things that become points of contention, and how are those points of contention negotiated and discussed, right? Um, so that's, uh, uh, you know, that's, that's sort of the approach. And what I'm interested in in these three countries is how a certain number of those issues are being negotiated, hence my title I had there at some point, right? Negotiating democracy in these Muslim contexts. How are questions that are religiously sensitive or that are particularly concerned to religious groups being negotiated? Alfred Stepan has this, you know, these concerns about this book about um, twin tolerations and, and religion. He talks about bargaining. I think it's very similar. This sort of, I'm talking in very similar terms. I preferred this question of, of negotiating because it's more prolonged, perhaps. Um, okay, the interest of these cases then, of these three countries, is they are all overwhelmingly Muslim countries. If you remember or notice that, that chart, they're all 95% or so Muslim. Um, and they are all launched on processes of democratization since the early 1990s, so we're going on 20 years. Um, and it continued ongoing experimentation and negotiation and discussion about what that means in each of those, uh, in, in each of those cases. Um, there, there. I, I want to, you know, some of you may know some of these countries fairly well. So let me be clear. There is a lot of things about the debate on democracy, right? Corruption, the fairness of elections, what kinds of institutions work well, etc., which are not necessarily about religion, and they are very important. But I'm not. That's not what I'm focused on. I'm not going to talk about uh, institutional uh, choices or or um, or elections, etc. And I'm also not going to try to pronounce myself on how democratic these countries are. Uh, there's inside the country, and I personally think as a sign of the fact that they're democratic, a strong and constant critique by people about the undemocratic qualities of government actions and institutions, et cetera, right? There's constant critique of it. But, and so many, you know, in my, in my exchanges with my West African colleagues, they're always saying, but it's not really a democracy. Do you see what the president's trying to do, or do you see how this institution's working? And I say, yeah, I understand. But, you know, the point for me is that the debate that democracy is not only central to the agenda in all three, but since the early 1990s, it is by far the dominant ideological framework within which politics are discussed. Everybody talks about issues as, is this democratic or not democratic? Would it be democratic or not democratic? And the arguments are exactly are always on those lines, right? There, it has not been displaced. There's no significant political actor saying, we don't want a democracy. The debates are about what's that supposed to mean to have a democracy, right? And so it's in that sense that I'm focused on it. So let me, if I summarize the argument, let me summarize it a little bit for you, then I'm going to back up and tell you a bit about the cases, and then I'm going to tell you about some of the points of debate, some of the arguments, uh, uh, areas of negotiation. So if I sort of summarize the argument, I'd say everywhere in the 1990s pretty much, yes? I'm going to try to adjust the mic here. Is it, making, is it echoing yeah. a bit? Yeah, that's, okay. That. Is that better? Good. Okay, that's better for me too. That's, I kept hearing these resonating. Okay. Um, so... Everywhere, in the early 1990s, democracy is embraced pretty much everywhere. Um, but in Africa, one of the very interesting things for me is we had this sort of rush of embracing democracy frequently by just the collapse of an old regime or this marginalization and an election, and it left almost everything unsettled. 
and incomplete, right? I mean, I remember in Nigeria in 1999 where they were having the effort of democratization, there was actually a governor of the state said, let's just get the elections over with. We can write a constitution afterwards, right? And it was completely putting the cart before the horse. The point was that it was, okay, now we're a democracy, but everything was open to negotiation, Every, in some cases more than others, obviously. But frequently, a whole lot of what's supposed to be a democracy was left to be settled uh, afterwards. The result, of course, was that it opened the door to all sorts of discussions and debates and to all sorts of long-term uh, uh, transformations and long-term changes, both at the level of those institutions of democracy and at the level of social change as different groups arose to try to position themselves uh, to, 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 to sort of shape that debate and where it was going to go. Now, specifically, in, these, in this Muslim Sahel, Sahel is a geographic term for this semi-arid region of West Africa. So the Muslim Sahel, sometimes I say Francophone Sahel, that's much less accurate than Muslim. Not, not everybody, not, most people don't speak French, but it's just the official language. So specifically in this Muslim uh, Sahel, the interesting thing is that the notion of democracy that was embraced immediately at that transition, and especially in Mali and Niger, where it was a very abrupt transition um, with a national conference, I'll, I'll talk about that in a minute, and a transitional government, it brought an immediate confrontation between two worldviews that, for simplicity's sake, I can call the secular and the religious, right? A secular view and a religious worldview. Um, as a consequence, the, and, and the movements were led by the secular side, right? The pro-democracy movements. As a consequence, the immediate reaction of many religious groups was to be against democracy, right? In, in many cases, you had the religious groups saying, wait a minute, we don't want it. And then very quickly, however, they've moved to favoring it, but to engaging in the debate about how are we going to define it? What's it supposed to mean to be a democracy? The example I like to use was in 1993 in Niger, um, where as part of the transition, there were a series of texts that the transitional government said, if we're going to be a democracy, here's what we need. We need a certain number of things, obviously a constitution, and several others, one of which was a family code. That is, it's a French Napoleonic system. So a set of laws about family life, marriage, divorce, inheritance, adoption, uh, you know, all those kinds of issues that are governed by family law. And they proposed one, which was the French one, more or less, you know, changing the word France for Niger once in a while, etc., borrowed from the colonial legacy, proposed largely a French code. The religious groups immediately said, if that's democracy, we don't want it, and immediately mobilized against it, saying, well, that's, see, democracy is a Western concept, we don't want it, etc. What's amazing is to me is that in a very brief period of time, the religious groups all of a sudden said, wait a minute, and changed their tone and said, since this is a democracy, let's have a public debate about that. And let's see what kind of family law the Nigerian people want. Do they want is family law that reflects Islamic values, or do they want family law that's French, right? What do they want? Knowing very well, of course, that they would win that debate and win it very handily and very easily, hands down. And it put the pro-democracy people in this paradoxical position of saying, well, this is a democracy, but we can't negotiate some things, right? Those are things that are off the table. And so um, we got that, that kind of a debate. Um, so I think, in fact, and that, that points to this, I think the key underlying issue that, in fact, has taken place in all these countries is this debate about uh, which elements of democracy are universal and non-negotiable, right? That's the kind of thing that you can't. You can't have a democracy that enslaves part of the population. Every, oops, sorry. Everybody agrees on that. That's not democracy. So which are non-negotiable, but which are negotiable and subject to specific local and cultural contexts, right? Like who gets to marry whom, right? Is that something that's written up there, democracy has to allow certain kinds of things, or is that something we can debate and discuss and pass laws accordingly? Obviously, I'm echoing our current debates about who gets to marry whom in the U.S. Um, uh, and so I think it's at root that kind of question. It's that issue of what is on one side of the issue, what is the kind of thing that you have to, that a democracy has to have, and what are the kinds of things that can be negotiated that are being fought out, right, that are being played out in, in these contexts. Um, 
Now, one of the important aspects to say in this case, and I think it's probably true across a large part of the Muslim world where this is happening, is that um, the grand majority of people, including the secular groups, including those who start off as very secular groups, also agree that whatever form that democracy takes, they have to, they have to be able to say it is compatible, in their terms, right, this is as political actors, compatible with democracy. Um, the interesting thing, though, is there's no agreement on what, uh, sorry, compatible with Islam, right? The interesting thing is there's no agreement on what the Islamic position is on any given issue. And so we have a, a whole series of debates about who, what's the correct Islam or who has the right to say what's correct Islam, right? And I'll come back to that in a minute. A, a good example of that was just this past year recently, in the last few months, there's been a big debate about the death penalty in Mali. Um, there was a, very much a sort of secular groups decided they wanted to pass a law to ban the death penalty in accordance with a, lot, a strong international movement to ban death penalty, etc., as a, as a human rights, universal human rights kind of issue. Obviously, we're in violation of that one here in the U.S. too. But, there, but, um, but so there was a big push uh, to ban it. It was proposed as a law. The religious groups went against it. No one, most, the most secular people arguing in favor of banning the death penalty could make that argument except on religious grounds. What they did was bring out arguments in Islam saying that, no, actually, if you interpret Islam rightly, if you think about it this way, etc., it is okay to ban the death penalty, right? So the, ter- the terms of the debate have shifted to the religious one, but still spanning the full spectrum of the policies, right? You can be for or against the death penalty, but you've got to argue it in religious terms. That's pretty much shifted. Okay, let me tell you a little bit about... Um, about a little bit more specifically about the cases, about the politics, both the religious and the uh, political dimensions of, of the cases. Um, and you'll see there's some broad similarities and, and also some significant variations. Um, in Mali and Niger first, right, the two countries here to the east, um, very much follow this sort of classic pattern of African politics, right? They had a government of independence in 1960 from the French Empire that was supposed to be an effort at democracy and creating a, you know, a, transition, a transition to a post-colonial context and very quickly proved ineffectual and, and were moved aside, moved first to single party and then moved aside, and you got military rule. And then throughout the 70s, 80s, and, and, and to the early 90s, right, throughout the 1980s, military rule. Again, most of Africa is... If, you know, those of you who are familiar know in the 70s and 80s, almost all of Africa was ruled by single party or military rulers, etc. So very much classic. Also, though, fitting what is a big picture of African politics, by the late 1980s, that's falling apart. Those, the economic situation and the political situation is so catastrophic that you start to see the beginnings of movements of protest. And in the early 1990s, with the Cold War, whether or not it's a consequence and a cause of the collapse of the end of the Cold War is a debate, but nevertheless, with the end of the Cold War, there's an opening and all of a sudden an explosion of demands for democracy across the continent. Um, so in both of these countries, you had a major political crisis. You had a showdown with de- demonstrators. In both cases, it turned out to be students. A couple of students were shot in each case. Provokes a major national crisis and a, the collapse, basically, of the military regime. There's a little bit of difference. Uh, in Mali, it completely gets swept aside. In Niger, it sort of gets marginalized and has to stand on the sides and watch as the system gets changed. Um, in any case, um, they both undertook this process of democratization. They do- both did this this system, which is in Africanist circles quite famous for the Francophone countries, the former French colonies, of a national conference. It's basically a constitutional convention. They co- combine, you know, co- uh, sort of representatives of all the social forces in the country were asked to debate, and very much in a sort of French uh, um, estates general kind of sense, and come up with a whole new political, rethink the political system. Those are heavily slanted towards the secular and civil society groups, journalists, women's groups, students, bureaucrats, party officials, etc. Very little representation of religion or of, of, uh, of the, rural, the rural vast majority of con- people in the country. But these were the people who had been involved in pushing democracy. 
Okay, and so they both launched on it, and within a year, both held elections, so Niger with somewhat more difficulties than Mali, and Niger also had a little blip where the military came back briefly and was pushed aside again. It's been a little bit more complicated. I won't go into the details, but the point is that starting in the early 1990s, they really entered this, this, uh, this trajectory of debate. Senegal, for those of you who know it, and I won't insist too much, but uh, when I talk about this to Africans who know it, well, they say, well, but Senegal is different. And Senegal has long been considered, in the 70s and 80s, we always said it was the one, see, it's proof that democracy is possible in Africa. It's a very special kind of democracy. There was never a change of government via ballot box. The secret ballot was optional. You had to, you know, you could, and if you voted behind the curtain, people knew who you were voting for, as, you know, as opposed to voting in public. So it was very limited. And so Senegal, in many ways, when you look at it more closely, but it was stable. And I'll, I could go into that at length. I think part of the reason it was stable had to do with the relationships with religious groups and religious societies, but I'll talk a little bit about those in a minute. Um, but nevertheless, Senegal has the same crisis. In the late 80s, major crisis. Early 90s, major demands for change. Um, so the government made some real changes, and in the 1990s, the institutional changes, in fact, created a system that might really be called democratic. And in 2000, when the elections were held for the first time in 40 years of independence, the government was voted out of office and a new government voted into office. So there was, in fact, a democratic transition that took place sort of more gradually, but over the course of the 1990s. Okay, now... I already mentioned this, but another similarity in all three cases, but especially visible in Mali and Niger because of the abrupt break, was that it was a secular, right, a secular that is non-religious, and francophone, that is French-speaking elite, that led these transitions to democracy. By francophone, let me just explain a second. These, are, these countries are all part of the, they were, they were part of French West Africa. French is the official language. The vast majority of people in the country do not speak French at all. Um, and those that, you know, those that do, while we talk about francophone, it's the people who have gotten an education through the official school system and been through high school and probably university. And the elite, of course, they've been to Ohio State and and, you know, and, and La Sorbonne and, and uh, London, et cetera, and gotten advanced degrees abroad, et cetera. So this is, but their, but their training is through a formal educational system in French. So it's francophone in that sense. Those are the people that led independence, and uh, sorry, led the democracy movement. And what they meant by it, and it was really striking to me, is that the project of democracy was what I call a, a transformational project as opposed to a representational one. What I mean by that was that they said, okay, now that we have a democracy, what are we going to do? We have to change society. Right? Immediately, the pro-democracy movement was all about getting money from the outside to get campaigns to go out to the countryside to teach women their rights, which is basically to get people to think differently about culture, think differently about gender relations, think differently about politics, etc. There were no end of sort of transformational kinds of things. And almost nothing about saying, let's create a political system that looks like our population, right? That looks like it in terms of culture, in terms of demography, in terms of what it is, right? That wasn't the project at all. Um, now, um, this is this is of course where the, that clash uh, came came in. Uh, religious groups pretty quickly learned to say, "Wait a minute, we want something that looks like us," and that's where the negotiation is taking place. A comment about the religious consequences of this in the context of. Um, of this opening and liberalization, I think it's, it's fair to say, and again, this is just summarizing a complex situation, to say there's been a democratization of religion, a democratization of the religious sphere, in a context where historically there were traditional religious authorities, and usually with varying degrees of relationships with authoritarian states, or in the case of Senegal, semi-authoritarian state, um, you have these close relationships. Uh, in this new period, all of a sudden, anybody, it's democracy, anybody can organize anything they want, and they can sort of talk about anything they want. And so you you get people questioning religion and questioning the established authorities. Uh, and so you get 
um, again, an extreme, uh, a, a, a proliferation of a whole variety of religious groups. My point here is that the debate, this opening up of democracy changes not just debates at the state level, but debates at the societal level, among people about, right? You get all these changes. Now again, Senegal's is, um, I'm going to try to show you just a few pictures. Senegal's uh, is very noteworthy and of particular interest because Senegal had a very well, has a very well established religious, traditional, if you will, religious authority in the form of Sufi Islam, and I, I won't explain in detail what that is, but it's Sufi Islam. These are religious organizations that emphasize one particular aspect of Islam with major religious leaders called uh, marabouts there. And I think, let's see. And so, well, let me just, uh, that's not very visible and not that interesting. This is, uh, the point of Sufi Islam is that you have these major charismatic religious authorities that people are very be uh, beholden to. And what's happened in Senegal, let me say this and then I'll show the slides. What happened in Senegal is that this system over the course of the 90s and into the 2000s has come under, has started to erode in all sorts of ways. I'll tell you, Mali and Niger, it's more dramatic even, but has started to erode in all sorts of ways and it's really shown there. So this is a classic sort of situation in Senegal where you'll have a young man selling meat in a marketplace, but he's got a picture of his religious le leader there. And when I say, can I take your picture? He goes, yes, yes, but me with him, right? I mean, this is very close relationship with the traditional religious authority. Major pilgrimages at these Sufi centers that attract Thousands of people. These are two major marabouts. This is taken at night. Can you guys see that from the back? So it's a, it's a, there's, okay, visible. Um, again, these are women entering a, a tomb right there. People buying pictures of these marabouts, etc. So you got a huge, this very, very extreme importance of it. Historically in Senegal, that was very closely tied to the political situation. And so this is actually a, a cover of a magazine, sort of the Senegalese equivalent of Time magazine, called New Horizons, which asks. Uh, which talks about the fact that the president and the prime minister are going to visit the religious people, whom I should note, point out, there's a, a Catholic uh, cardinal there who represent 5% of the population, right? But it's, a, it's very important for them to include that as well. And asks, does legitimacy come through marabouts, that is, through traditional religious authorities, right? So you get this, this extreme uh, emphasis on that. This is when Abdoulaye Wad, the current president of Senegal, was elected in 2000. The very first thing he did was to go to the holy city of his Sufi order and be photographed kneeling or prostrating himself in front of this religious leader who has since died last year and who was a major sort of religious leader in the country. So a very close political relationship. This was extremely controversial there. Um, in, the, you know, in the magazines, you have, do we have a president who's a disciple or a disciple who's a president, right? What's the relationship here? So these are the kind of things that are getting debated. One of the things that's happened is that now all of a sudden, for the first time over the last 15 or so years, you have a much more critical and open debate about this system, right, in this context of democracy. So you get, this is a representative of a new movement splintering off of that Sufi order. They have their website there. You can go to it. It's called Hizbut Tarkiya. And they have all this modern stuff. They, this is in their, holy, uh, their, their, their major headquarters. They have an international institute for research and study on Muridism. That's the name of the order, etc. So there's this internationalization and sort of engagement with it. A series of young marabouts, this one being interviewed, My Ambitions, because he decided to run for political office, something unheard of previously before in this context. A lot of anxiety about it, so you get covers like this, political parties, the Islamic danger, the Islamic peril, right? Because all of a sudden, you saw a much more, oops, I'm sorry, proliferation of, um, of uh, politi politicized Islamic movements. And you got, of course, after 9-11, a lot of anxiety about questions like this, Islam and violence, are Muslims bin Laden, right? Or just, to what extent does bin Laden represent Muslims? Football and Parisian perfume are also very important in Senegalese culture, <laughs> I should point out. So, <laughs> um, no one knows it. So again, here are, are our Islamists dangerous, etc. You get that kind of a, that kind of a, a thing there. Okay, so um, 
you, uh, the, the, the point is that you've got this, this new proliferation of debates inside of religious society and a lot of transformations taking place. In Mali and Niger and the other two countries, because it had this very controlled political system, it's really quite striking. Each of those military regimes had decided they were corporatist, right, in political science terms regimes, that had basically said, we're going to, there's a single party, we have a military ruler, and there's a single association for women, one for youth, one for this, one for that, and one for Muslims. And so there was an official Islamic association, which was the only legally way to organize as Muslims anywhere in the country, and was recognized by the state. In 1991-92, as the democracy took place, that fell apart and immediately had an explosion of all sorts of religious associations and all sorts of religious uh, voices in the public sphere. Um, in in all, of three, all three cases, then, we got a, uh, an, an extreme proliferation of variation. There's a wide range of ideologies, and in the interest of time, I won't try to explain them, but let me, a couple of important sort of tendencies to point out among this, uh, in this, in this big religious debate in society, right? One was the rise of modern, if you will, Francophone intellectuals who take on religious coloration, right? Historically, if you were educated in the French system, spoke French well, etc., you were almost by definition secular. But in this new context, we have now bureaucrats, especially engineers and business people and doctors and people like that, lawyers, uh, etc. Not lawyers, not lawyers, doctors, um, uh, who, um, who take on this sort of into, uh, the, uh, this, um, religious uh, ideology, sometimes close to the Egyptian uh, Muslim Brotherhood or something of the sort, but who on the one hand have this very Islamic agenda and are critical of the secular state, but are also very critical of the established and traditional religious authorities, right, that have been sort of part of there for, for a very long time. So we have this very, very strong uh, debate. Again, there's... Um, uh, there's, there's, of course, the, the, those authorities have not been swept away. Classical Sufism, as I mentioned earlier, stays there very much. Um, there's, uh, you know, yeah, it stays there. But it, what's really striking to me is that even among these very traditional Sufi families, you've got a new debate. There's a, a major leader of one of these Sufi orders in Senegal who just wrote a book last year that I was sort of amazed to see called Sufism, Advantages and Inconveniences. And nobody talked about advantages and inconveniences. It was, only, it was the only way to be 15 years ago, right? I mean, the notion of inconveniences. And it's like, well, you know, it's good, but you've got to be careful, etc. I actually have a this, is a... this is a man from a very um, religious Sufi background and president of a media group, but talking about, I won't go into the details, about Sufi relations with the, states, with the state, which historically people have said, oh, you know, the reason Senegal is peaceful is because of all the Sufi Islam, and, and it's all about accommodation, and it's about dialogue and engagement. He says, yeah, yeah, we're about accommodation and dialogue and engagement, but don't forget, we're also about jihad if necessary and resisting aggression. He was talking in the context of the U.S. preparation for the war in Iraq, and he was very angry about that. So my point is that that's also something you wouldn't say, right? This is a picture of a couple of students at the university. They look a lot clearer here than I think they do there, but anyway. Um, these are, these, are, these are students who came as representatives of a Sufi group. You would never have seen 10 years ago a young woman wearing that kind of Muslim headdress, that sort of hijab dressing, who identified as Sufi. That would have been a sign that she was an anti-Sufi, a reformist, one of these Islamist groups. But all of a sudden, that terrain has shifted, right? So things are shifting fairly significantly. Okay, that's just a picture of the Mosque of Tuba. Um, okay, so overall then, uh, sorry, so that's, that's the one, one major religious transformation. The other mentioned quickly, is the rise of Muslim women's associations. And a very important gendered voices being spoken up of Muslim women, and especially what we saw this pattern quite strikingly in the 19, early 1990s, even starting in the late 1980s in Mali and Niger, was people like school teachers and nurses and whatnot said, you know, we're going to go learn about Islam. And they started educating themselves. And all of a sudden they're now saying, 
we're Muslim, and as Muslim women, we're going to organize. And they have their own debate. They're saying, we want things to be in accordance with Islam. But it turns out that Islam's been interpreted by men all this time, and they have a very specific view about polygamy or divorce that is to their benefit. And it turns out, in Islamic terms, we're interpreting it differently, and we're going to put forth a different religious argument, right? So, again, it's... Um, uh, it's, it's within Islam, but a very, very interesting sort of uh, aspect taking place. So the negotiation place, the negotiation that's taking place in this democratic context is also a negotiation inside of religion. And that's my point, right? Inside of religious uh, society. Um, okay, and, and I should note that this, is, this has gotten governments very nervous now. There's so many people negotiating about religion that what we've seen in all countries is an effort to go back, uh, but they can't do it because they're democracies. But they're in each of Mali and Niger, and there's a similar effort in, in Senegal using the uh, Sufi authorities, is they've said, well, we're actually going to create a high council of Islam or a, 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 a national Islamic council or something of the sort that's supposed to bring all these tendencies together to speak with a unified voice. They don't, of course, because they don't agree. That's the point. But the government is nervous about this proliferation. Okay, um, now, ooh, I'm going to have to go fairly, let me, I'm going to touch then, I'm going to go, I'm going to skim it, but talk to, briefly about three areas of negotiation, or three areas of this debate that's taking place, right? So what I've described for you is this democratic opening, which leads to a big debate about what's democracy and do we want it at the political level, and an agreement that, well, democracy, whatever it is, we want it to be acceptable for us as Muslims, because everybody's Muslim, more or less. And so then that could, leads to a debate among Islamic society, among Muslims, about, well, what's Islam say about these issues, and, how, right, and, and, uh, and what is the correct Islamic position on it? So all of this has been opened up. Now I'm going to point to three areas of negotiation, or three areas of debate, right? Okay, one of them, one of them is just the, the, the nature of the state itself. One is specifically legal issues surrounding gender, and one is uh, on education, a sort of a longer-term policy issue. The, the, the question of, uh, of secularism and the state, right? A huge debate is opened up in all three countries of democratization on this question of secularism, as you would expect. That is, what is the relationship of religion and the state, right? What's the state's relation to religion? Um, the, um, the, uh, the, the word, the French word is laïcité, right? As in lay or laic, right? Uh, so laïcité. And so this, the question of, of laïcité, the word itself has all these connotations that became extremely controversial. And in each of these cases, there were huge political debates just about the word, literally about the word. In Mali, there was a big debate as to whether the word should be included in the Constitution or not. It was, and in the end it was, I'll just say that. In Niger, the debate was so intense and the Islamic forces a little stronger that the word was taken out, but it was replaced with a statement that the state is non-confessional, right? Has no confession, has no religion. So, and, and today people talk about it as it's a secular state, but the word secular is not there because it was so controversial. Senegal, which had this amazing history of stable and fairly secular regime, in 2000, when the government took over, the first thing the, government said, the new government said is, we're going to write a new constitution, and when they first published a draft, of that new constitution, it left out the word secular, created a huge brouhaha, and it was eventually put back in. But the point is, there was, you know, there was this sort of questioning, hmm, now we're democracy, should we leave this word in or, or not? Um, now, that's one debate, and there are aspects of it that we could go into, but what's interesting for me now is everybody now, it's, the word has remained, in, or the idea has remained, the word itself has remained in Senegal and Mali, the idea of it has remained in Niger, but there's a huge debate about what does that mean, right? And the debate, again, to summarize, the, the reason why it's so intense is because these are former French colonies. And as many of you may know, France, along with a Muslim country, Turkey, have arguably the strongest notions of secularism anywhere in the world in their political system. So in both of those countries, France, of course, 
significant Muslim minority, but not a Muslim country, and, and Turkey, a predominantly Muslim country, have things like women are not allowed uh, to wear a headscarf in public buildings, etc., being debated right now in each of those cases, right, especially Turkey. But, you know, a very strong separation. It's like a woman can't go into, you couldn't be at a university wearing a headscarf in Turkey, and, or in, you couldn't go to school, and there was a big debate about it in France. So this is, that's the notion of what secularism meant for these countries when it's first adopted. And that's the idea people had in mind, the ones who wanted that word in the Constitution. That's gone. That's completely gone. What you have now is a series of other debates about, well, what is the appropriate relationship? And what really struck me as amazingly interesting is everywhere I went last year interviewing people, they all say, we have, the religious groups would say, we have no problem with secularism as long as it's American-style secularism. I'd say, what do you mean? It says, your currency says, in God we trust. Your constitution says things about God. Your presidents swear on a Bible, right? They, they, they say, God bless America at the end of every speech. They have prayer breakfast in the White House, right? All things that are unthinkable in the French context. They say, that's fine. You know, as long as our presidents can be Muslims and pray and to invite people to pray and swear on the Quran, etc. Those kinds of issues. Um, uh, of course, they also tell me, and in France, they won't even let girls wear a scarf to school if they want to, which is true. You can't wear, a Muslim girl cannot wear a headscarf to school in France. Um, now, that's, so that's, that's a huge debate. There's a, there's a variation among it. There's, there are very, very few, almost none, who could still hold that strong secular position. The majority, I think, would be in this American secularism domain. Um, which, which um, uh, describes it as complete religious freedom, that you have to be sure that democracy is good and secularism is good because it allows us the freedom to be Muslim, but that means you're free to be Muslim and you're free to be publicly Muslim and you're free to be Muslim even if you're president or senator or whatever, right? There is a stronger statement. Some are pushing on the other way and saying, you know, it's not enough to be free to be Muslim. The state and the government has an obligation to give us the, right, the, the means to practice being Muslim, really. So, for example, it's not only that we have the right to pray at the university, but the government should build a mosque at the university. Right? Or they should build a mosque on the compounds of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs or whatever, you know, whatever it is in the capital city. So it's pushing it. But the debate, that's where the debate is, right? There's a debate right in there. And this is the terrain of that debate today. And again, I, I just want to point it's sort of towards my conclusions that it's not that different from the debate in the U.S., right? Can you put Ten Commandments up in a courthouse or not? And, you know, what is, is that acceptable? Is it not acceptable? What's, you know, some things we have obviously settled. Okay, well, that's one huge area of debate. The second, I already alluded to, is gender issues, and especially the debate about uh, family law. Um, obviously, gender is extremely important politically everywhere, uh, and, and especially in the Muslim world. Um, in, um, it, you know, it's, it's obviously something also that lends itself to that ambiguity about what kinds of things are off the table, um, in a democracy, you know, that, that you can't, if, if you're a democracy, you have to allow these certain kinds of things, and what kinds of things are subject to negotiation, right? So the example I give my students all the time as well, you know, is gay marriage, is that an issue for, should that be settled democratically, or should that be settled according to some sort of text saying, you know, banning it is undemocratic, no matter what people want, or should that be something we should debate and decide what we want, right? And, and what, what's, what side of it that does it fall on? So this is, you know, this is gender issues, I think, very much fall into there. What happened? Well, I already described to you briefly the Nigerian case. In all of these countries, they said we need a family code because that's part of, you know, the model of democracy was a French model. So in Niger, they presented it. It was, I already described it, and I'll go very quickly. It was never, the bottom line is it's never been adopted. It's a standoff because the religious associations have said, we'll adopt it if you put it up for a public debate and vote, and let's see what people want. And, the, the, of course, those who are promoting it know they'd always, they'd certainly lose that vote. Now they're trying to do it by passing little bits and a minimum age for marriage or little, you know, as separate laws or whatever. And each of those is being fought out and negotiated and discussed, right? 
In Mali, this was also put on the, on the agenda as democratization. There had been an old code. They said, now we're a democracy. We need a family law. Um, again, very much politicized. Uh, a, um, again, a confrontation between secularists. What's really interesting is that there has been a constant negotiation about the details of this law in Mali for now over 15 years. Now, when the first democratically elected president finished his second mandate after 10 years, his second term in office, on his last days in office, he was under a lot of pressure to pass it by decree. There was a constitutional provision where instead of having it voted on, the president could promulgate it. You know, as U.S. presidents sometimes getting out of office get to do certain kinds of things that escape, you know, pardon people or whatnot. So he was, there was a lot of pressure on him to do that. And he had, there was on both sides extraordinary pressure. The women's groups, primarily promoting it, thought it would happen, and he didn't do it in the end. And it's very clear he didn't do it because of the political consequences of it, right? It was politically, it would be a very politically sensitive kinds of stuff. And it's really interesting. The, the religious groups, the, the, the women's groups tell me he, he the, the women, women I'm using as a shortcut here for the secular women who are promoting this, um, say he, in the end, he chickened out, basically. He lacked the courage to do it. The religious group said he was wise in the end and knew what the people wanted. So, you know, you have these two different interpretations of it. The bottom line, though, is that that, that didn't happen, and yet it picked up again. And last year when I was there, there's a commission that represents the most the most fundamentalist, to use a shortcut term, Islamic groups, and the most secular women's association representatives sitting down going article by article, line by line, trying to find compromises. So, you know, under what kind of polygamy, under what conditions, what kind of divorce, under what conditions, how are we going to deal with inheritance? Line by line, it's being negotiated, and a, 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 a draft has actually been presented, hasn't yet been adopted. Interestingly, and just to summarize, in Senegal is the one country that did have a family code because in 1972, the then president, who happened to be a Catholic in this 5% Catholic country, um, had passed it. But of course, he passed it undemocratically. He could get away with it. It wasn't a democracy. What, um, to everyone's surprise, democracy in the early 2000s, first thing that happens is a group gets organized and says, we want to reform and change that family code. And there was an effort to open it up, and they presented an Islamic family code as an alternative, etc. That also hasn't gone anywhere, but it's very clear that there's a negotiation taking place about gradual and small reforms of it. Okay, there's lots that can be said about it, but what, the interesting thing for me is that this is, a, this is a situation in which something as fundamental legal structure of the state as personal and family law. These countries had inherited or, or you know, reflexively tried to adopt something fairly alien. These are things very much rooted in cultural concepts. And in a democratic context, they have been stopped, and a debate and negotiation is going on and taking place about them there. Um, I won't have much time, so I'm going to say just a couple words about, about education. And then uh, I'll see. I have, I'll see if I show you some more slides. Because um, about 1.20, we have to get completely out of here? Yeah. And I want to leave time for discussion. Um, okay, so let me just say a few words about, about the, the education. Um, this is something that I think um, has been not directly, uh, not, it's, not, it's not being debated in terms of democracy, but it is clearly a consequence of the democratization effort. Um, all of a sudden, in all three of these countries, there are efforts to attempt to reform educational systems, which are eroding the notion of schools as secular institutions essential for building a democratic political order, which is the French notion of it. And uh, there's, there's a confluence of factors, but let me just sort of sketch it out. The, um, the, historically, in all of these countries, as in most of Africa, the formal and official educational system was inherited from colonialism. It's in French. It's completely secular. includes no religious instruction. And in fact, you know, the classic joke in West Africa is, you know, the textbook starts off with saying things like, our ancestors, the Gauls, etc. And you have these little black African kids saying, our ancestors, the Gauls. And we talk about our philosophers, and it's Descartes. And, you know, they, they have courses in French philosophy, you know. And, and, all, and this is all, and a crucial part of the school curriculum, right? Well, um, that's been historically the case. To summarize it, 
it's failed pretty dramatically. The French educational system has meant that vast majority of kids never complete education, never complete primary school, much less secondary school uh, education. They either fail out among the way, the parents don't want them there, the parents don't send them. The parents see it as a high-risk strategy. You put a kid there, they're learning strange things in foreign languages that you don't speak, and they come back telling you all sorts of stuff that doesn't sound like what the education you got or you want them to have within the sort of traditional and Muslim and African context. And the, the result was that in all of these countries, you got a parallel system of education. It starts off very basically as Quranic schools, and then they got more and more sophisticated over time and turned into what they sometimes call Franco-Arabic schools these days, where the kids are taught French, because if they don't know French, they really can't do anything official in the government, but also taught Arabic, which is of course also a foreign language, um, but also taught Islam. And so, and gradually, in the, early, in the 1990s, after the, the, the secular, the government was always extremely hostile to those schools. They were never supervised in ministries of education. They were in the ministry of the interior division of religious affairs or something like that. And all of a sudden, in the 1990s, the shifts that took place have all of a sudden opened a door to rethink this. And in all of these countries, they are now reincorporating this sort of these efforts to say we have to reform education. And they're in the secular schools introducing religious education. The state sometimes is creating Franco-Arabic state schools, and they're negotiating with these private schools saying, look, you can keep teaching them Arabic and Islam, but also teach them the state curriculum and make them take the standardized state exams, right? And so, again, it's a bit more complex in each case, but that's the gist of it. So we have this incredible negotiation taking place about religion, sorry, about education, with very significant long-term consequences. Just very quickly, I'll show you. This is a woman who's a major Sufi leader in Senegal. She's got a website. There it is as well. But this is her. She runs both at the moment. A traditional Quranic school. This is in her household. I think there's another one. And you see a bunch of kids sitting on the ground with wooden boards and Quranic verses and they memorize it. And it's very basic, classic, traditional West African Quranic education. Incidentally, one of those kids there is an American, a Muslim American who'd been sent to get an Islamic education in, in West Africa. Um, and this is her other school that she's opened in the last decade, which is a modern school. Um, called Dar al-Quran al-Karim, right, the house of the Holy Quran. But you can see, the kids are wearing uniform. It's prayer time, so the kids pray. But this is recess. They're running around. They're, you know, um, it's, it, it's a modern school, in other words. So it's um, very much sort of that, that kind of a situation. Um, OK, so um, I'm, I had, I'll, I'll see whether you want me to. I have, um, I, I have time? We can have questions. We can have questions. Let me make a couple of conclusions. I have, if we have time later and you want, I had a some slides of one specific event that encapsulates a lot of this in Niger. And let me, let me I'll come back to it if we have time. Is that better? The, um, a, uh, a, a specific political event of, uh, of uh, you know, women, Islam, peace, democracy, et cetera, that I, that I wanted to use as an example. Um, let me just, to, just to get, to, you know, just let me just summarize then. Um, my, my, the point that I'm trying to get at, and obviously, and I'm sorry, I'm trying to skim over lots of issues in lots of countries. So it's, I'm painting, as I said, in, in big pictures. But... Whatever it was, this adoption of democracy in Africa and, and probably elsewhere was not the end of a process. It's not like countries, a lot of political sciences, oh, you know, you go from non-democracy to democracy, at some point you made a transition. This is a long transition. It was not the end, but the beginning of a process, which is now in, well into its second decade of negotiating what that's supposed to mean. But everybody's agreed, we're going to be a democracy. But it's still being negotiated and bargaining over what it's going to be. It's a process that involves negotiations and transformations at the state level, institutions, etc., educational systems, policy, but also negotiations and transformations at the societal level, where people are saying, yes, we're a democracy, and yes, we're Muslims, but we have to decide who has the right to say, as Muslims, what is acceptable in a democracy and what isn't. And so you have that social debate taking place as well. 
The process is led, obviously, by a whole lot of different factors, including the nature of the inherited systems, the Francophone legacy, and the development of social forces that this opening has created, especially the Islamic associations, and by prevailing social and cultural realities. And so, by necessity, it's going to have to involve negotiation, and sometimes it's going to be confrontation. Sometimes there are real moments of tension. Um, And occasionally, at the beginning, there were moments of violence. It's striking to me that there's very little violence surrounding this these days, right? It's intense debate and negotiations, protests in the streets sometimes, but very little violence. Um, And what it leads me is that, uh, just to summarize, so we do have time for questions, is that the lesson, I think, from the Sahel, from these countries, is that if allowed to proceed and if allowed to go on, and I would like to juxtapose it to the case of Algeria in 1991 where it was not allowed to go on, um, democracy or this notion of democracy has the possibility, at least, for being negotiated and adapted to an extremely wide range of social and cultural realities and social and cultural terrains, including, very clearly, certainly including Muslim societies. Um, There's nothing, per se, that makes it impossible. And so this is... These, these countries, alas, all too often ignored um, uh, in the literature on Islam and democracy, I think are, along with Indonesia, interestingly enough, perhaps setting the example of what is possible. I'll stop there, so I do have time for questions. And sorry to have gone out a little too long. Okay, yeah, sure. Yes, sir, and I'll come to you, Sven. Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. right, right, right. You know, I, I, I have to say that uh, maybe you actually say, yeah, I think that's you probably could think about it that way. I think the the reason I prefer to talk about it in negotiation is that there is the the sort of there's, there's some very fundamental issues. I mean, in many cases, you're literally writing uh, laws that people agree are supposed to be the framework for a democracy. And in the local context, you get this discussion of, well, we're not quite there yet. We haven't yet figured out. We need to come to some resolution. We need a family law, but we don't know what the family law is yet, right? So, um, it, you know, we haven't actually even gotten one yet. And that's, and in local terms, it's certainly presented that way as we're trying to democratize. We're working towards democracy. Um, but, but, Yes, I think I have to say, right, you're sort of, I, I see your point. Um, I see your point. And in fact, in some ways, I would argue, I, I, I do like to say, I mean, people use all sorts of qualifying adjectives for these countries, right, as most of Africa. Democracy exists. It's quasi, it's semi, it's structured, it's authoritarian, you know, it, it, a million adjectives for it. And I, I, I say there are democracies. I, I agree with you. There are democracies. I think it's because they're, um, the, the, they're what's interesting is that in, I, I've made the analogy in a couple of cases to the U.S. case, whether it's on issues of sexuality or issues of representing of religion and judicial systems or something like that. We, clearly, a whole lot of that is settled in the U.S., where there's where sort of negotiations at the margin and there's negotiation following social change. In some ways, at least at the beginning of this process, nothing was settled. It was completely wide open, right? Um, but I think at this point, a lot of it is settled or is being settled. So it's a, you know, it's a sort of a question of framing it, I suppose. Is it the substance? Yes, it's mine.
right, after independence. And a lot of changes went through, uh, which resulted, of course, in, 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 the, in, the, in almost the permanent stay uh, of a variety of military drifters, right, mm -hmm. revolutionaries. However, the, the, the interest group that we've looked at, the democratically oriented groups, have always remained. Uh -huh. And with every opportunity that comes up, they crop up. Mm -hmm. you know, they, they, they're like spring flowers, right? They get a chance and then up they come. Mm -hmm. So they, they really did not vanish. And mm -hmm. in that context, uh, for the purpose of the history, mm -hmm. I think we can argue that democracy has almost always been embedded mm -hmm. to some extent mm -hmm. in this, this society, depending on the forces mm -hmm. that allow it to, to sprout or you know, suppress it. Yeah. I, I'm, Professor Kobo is no, no surprise a historian, so uh, I think you're, you're quite right to point to that, right? Obviously, I'm simplifying to some extent. What's striking to me is that, you know, African, for those of you who follow Africa a bit, uh, you know, the, the early independence movements were always, of course, the idea was, you know, an election of some sort led to independence, and the idea was that this was going to be a democracy modeled on these Western European models. They were led by young men, almost always, young people very much imbued in that European model, criticizing Britain and France for not allowing us to be like Britain and France, right, or Portugal, etc., and replicate those models there. And their project was very much about transforming. I mean, it was the modernization project. It's a modernization project that political scientists set out to study afterwards, right? It was all about how you were going to secularize societies, how you were going to change them in both economic and social terms, etc. And you're exactly right. That project has stayed there. But, what's, you know, in the 60, starting in the mid-60s, early 60s in some cases almost in Africa, and throughout the 70s and 80s, those projects were largely shut down by military and authoritarian regimes, but you're quite right that the, the idea never went away. And in the early 1990s, the talk was Africa's second independence. All of a sudden, the Cold War's over, there's sort of all sorts of barriers to, to sort of trying to revive that agenda are down, and those groups sort of came up again, and in some ways, I think, tried to revive exactly the same agenda. It was modern, it, they were modernization projects, right? They were about social change. They were about um, a changing culture, right? A, a secularis a secularization, etc. Cultural secularization was supposed to follow. It was, they, they assumed this was going to be a natural outgrowth of this and picked it up attempting to pursue it. Um, and what's striking to me, of course, is that that's not what's happening at all. They found themselves that this project that had been lying there for 30 years, you know, as, as you described it, popping up once in a while as you know, a little movement here and there trying to do it, popped up and said, now it's our turn. We're going to run these countries. And it turned out they looked behind them and nobody was following. It had almost nothing to do with 95% of the population in a place like Mali or Niger or even Senegal, right, where the vast majorities of the population are rural Muslim uh, uh, rural Muslims um, who don't speak French and who are totally unconnected from this debate and who don't see themselves mobilized by it and who see these people as fairly alien in some ways as well. I mean, the leaders of it. Again, I'm caricaturing it a bit. There's some nuance here, but um, but I think, but I, you know, that, that's exactly what, what, what strikes me that that in that they didn't. And what they were forced to do was to start to compromise to their surprise and to their great chagrin. Now submitting to to the World Bank and IMF right. uh, in position of or or or, or, or promotion of democracy. Right. right? Yeah, the question about the, 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 the impact of the end of the Cold War on African democratization, clearly it's important. Uh, you know, if nothing else, it removes the, the barrier. You know, the, there's so many regimes that were only propped up by one side or the other in the Cold War, and all of a sudden they're not propped up anymore. It didn't necessarily lead to democracy in Congo, Somalia. It led to collapse and chaos um, when you weren't propped up anymore. But, um, 
But clearly it's important. I, I was, when I made a brief mention of it, I think, which is what you're picking up on, I was alluding to the fact that among Africanists, I think, there's a lot of uh, sense that it, to, to sort of suggest that the only reason Africa democratizes is because the Cold War is over removes the idea that for a very long time there have been a lot of people in Africa, including these kids demonstrating in the 80s in the streets and fighting and sometimes dying, demonstrating against authoritarian and military regimes. There was clearly a fertile terrain for that. There was a lot of local agency, to use that kind of terminology. Yes. Yes, and then I'll come to you. Let me, I'll come Thank to you. So okay, yeah. Absolutely. Democracy in Senegal, you clearly want to recontextualize your history framework. Yeah. Um, and I'm interested about the actual, the, the, the decades out along gender barriers, class, or urban disparities. Could you just flesh that one out? Sure, absolutely, yeah. The, 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 um, the family code in Senegal, as I said, it was passed in 72 in a fairly non-democratic context. It was, it was very much a French inspiration, although it was able to be passed even then because it made some significant concessions. Uh, the most sort of famous and easily accessible one is polygamy, that polygamy is not banned by that family code, but it gives you an option. When you marry for the first time, both husband and wife have to choose whether they will be polygamous or whether he will be polygamous um, or monogamous. And the woman does have the right not to sign and say, I won't marry you unless you agree to monogamy, and then you're bound legally to monogamy. In social reality, that's imp non completely non-enforceable and isn't enforced. But it was at least juridically possible there. Um, so you had that kind of compromise in it. Um, and so it was seen as, you know, whatever. But there had always been, from among the sort of traditional religious authorities, a certain uh, resistance to it, but also a certain compla uh, co a complacency, you know, because of this very close relationship with the state. And so it hadn't been challenged uh, in any significant way. And it's only after demo the democratization and opening up that it gets challenged. And the ones who pick it up are... The, um, are this sort of groups of new intellectuals, francophone intellectuals. They were, in the Senegalese case, and those of you who know, frequently these people were people who were in the 60s were the Marxists. They were the leftist young radicals, and by the 90s are the, are the Islamist um, leaders of political parties, right? They sort of got this new ideology. And it was picked up by some of them. There was specifically something called Sirkovs, which is the Islamic, uh, the Islamic Council for the Reform of the Family Code of Senegal, a fairly well-organized group. And what they did was it was led by this Francophone secular elite, which was sort of a new phenomenon, this Francophone Islamist secular elite, and who was able to tap into that long-standing resentment of the religious authorities and really push for it. And they got a fair amount of traction on it. Now, that was such, in the Senegalese context, that was such a, an assault that what had been seen as one of the pillars of the stable and secular, secular, whatever that means, Senegalese state, that, in fact, the president himself slapped it down. Although he's the one who opened the door to some of these other ones. So it hasn't gone anywhere, um, but it's not gone away. And it's very interesting that in the parliament now there are several, several people who represent that kind of view and who can talk about it and say, no, the problem is we're, just, it's not, we're not ready for this change yet, but it will come. It will come. And they sort of see the social transformations taking place as likely to lead there. No, women as well as men. Uh, in, um, uh, it's really interesting, and you see it much more neatly in Mali and Niger, right? There is, there is a very strong cohort of Francophone secular women who would tend to be the bastions against it, but not only. The major human rights associations, which are mostly from the legal profession, are very much against, uh, very much trained in that French legal profession and want the sort of secular, uh, the secular family code, etc. But on the other side, it is both men and women, and you get these Muslim women's associations, and there's a fairly wide proliferation there. What's interesting to me is, though, that they, the Muslim Muslim women's associations will say, yes, we want a family code that, that um, 
reflects uh, Islamic family law, etc. But we don't agree with you on what you say Islamic family law is, they say to the men, right? Um, and that's the point I was getting at earlier. They, they're, we, they're, some of these issues like uh, polygamy, repudiation is a big one, inheritance, right? Repudiation, a form of divorce where the man can sort of unilaterally uh, divorce his wife. The women say that's un-Islamic. And we want Islamic family law, but that's un-Islamic. And so, so you get, so that's my point. You're having this debate is taking place, not just secular versus religious, but religious religious, right? The, the, everything is being... Everything's being negotiated. At a moment, I have to say, in the early 1990s, and this sort of gets to your question, I think, a little bit why I said this is, it was not at all clear this could survive at all, that the system, you know, that it, we could get there. The, the, the early confrontations I sort of skipped were quite, there were a few violent clashes in places like Niger, especially, um, about, you know, the sort of people mobilizing into the streets and violence and burning and, you know, groups burning bars or, you know, violence against women who were dressed in suggestive ways according to their point of view, th those kinds of things. Um, and so that confrontation, you know, is taking place and it's, it's moved. And that's, I guess, that's my point. Yeah. So I'm sorry. You had a question, I think. Yeah, um, you were talking about how a lot of the transition is going on in that 5% of the current population. Mm -hmm. And then Secure enough, do you mean, to, to withstand this social mobilization so you don't fall into authoritarian and Islamic states? Is that what you're... You know, the, I, I guess that's the big question. I think yes is the, the short answer. But here's why, and this is something that I'm actually, I, I try to use these countries as a model, I think, of what's possible. But they are, they are special in some ways. And so I wouldn't want it, you know, to be on it. You don't want to push it too far. And it is precisely because whatever that rural mobilization can be, the, these are, Niger is arguably the poorest country on earth. It has for most of the last decade or two been dead last in the UNDP's Human Development Index um, unless the war in Sierra Leone creates more mortality and it drops, you know. Sometimes when it's below, it's only by a war-torn neighboring country. If not, Niger is the last. Uh, dead last. Mali's, you know, in the last 10, or in, in Senegal's in the last 20. So they're all very, very poor countries. Um, and, uh, and there's very little physical infrastructure and capacity. And so the, the, they're, they're, the Islamic associations really have not had the capacity to replace the state completely. Now, what's interesting, though, is the ones that seemed like they might was this new movement of these engineers and others forming Islamic associations, which is a new phenomenon, right? As opposed to the traditional religious authorities that literally speak, they may speak five or eight languages, but they don't speak any that are uh, spoken at the UN, right? <laughs> they don't speak French or English or, or, or even Arabic, uh, sometimes Arabic. Um, you know, so, so they, they, they don't have quite literally the capacity, right? I mean, the state has been very firmly in the hands of this secular minority, partly for technical terms and partly for outside support. The French have never completely gone away. It's not clear the French would tolerate a complete collapse um, without some kind of intervention. So there's been a safety net, if you will. See what I'm saying? And, and so it's forced that negotiation in a way that might not have happened, although I sort of tend to think it probably would have anyway. I mean, I, but, you know, right? I don't know if I quite answered your question. The, did you still have something else that I... Uh, well, I'm just worried about, um, if it's in a bubble, if it has a safety net now, is that safety net always going to be there? And if not, then 
Um, that's certainly possible, but I don't, I don't see that on the horizon. I mean, what's really interesting to me is that, as I said at the very beginning, all sides talk about this is a democracy. They have a very different vision of what that's supposed to be, right? But I don't see that. Now, it's not impossible. And Niger did after, you know, the first, um, this is something that had nothing to do with religion. It had everything to do with institutions. They borrowed these French institutions. Those of your political science majors, the French semi-presidential kind of system that created what the French called cohabitation, cohabitation, a president of one party and a prime minister of the other immediately. And in this very poor and volatile context. It just stagnated the whole system and it fell apart and the military came in. But what was really striking to me as you look back at it is the military came in and within three years there was so much mobilization the military had to pull back out uh, because everybody said, no, 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 no. You could come in. That, those were, that was a bad, uh, a false start, they said. We got a bad start to democracy. Those institutions weren't good, but we haven't given up on it. Everybody said, move it aside and go back to democracy. Um, so I don't, see the, I don't see the likelihood of a military but you know, it can all be proved wrong very easily by military coups. But I don't see it as a likely scenario now. What is? Well, I, I thought you were getting at them. You know, with the, to what extent are we going to get an Islamization of the state? And so, is that going to be democratic or not? I don't know. You know, but that depends. That's part of that negotiation about what democracy means, right? I mean, it's certainly going to have public policies that are not necessarily the ones that secular liberal Westerners like me like, right? I mean, but you know, that's maybe that's democracy, right? Uh, you know, is. Are we undemocratic in, in Florida and Ohio because we don't allow gay marriage? Iowa does now, right? Um, and other states do. And is that, is that a failure of our democracy? Are we, is that a lack of democracy? Or is that something Ohioans and Floridians don't want and so they haven't gotten there yet, right? Uh, I don't know the answer to that question. But it strikes me as comparable to the ones these people are debating. Yes. Other questions? Uh, yes, sir. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, in, in, in Africa, you mean? Or in Latin America. Yeah. Um, boy, that's a huge debate, obviously, in political science. I don't have the questions for it. Let me just clarify that Senegal was the one exception in Africa that did not have a military regime, never did have a military regime, and no military intervention, no real coups. Um, but Mali and Niger, in fact, did. Um, I mean, I think that for, for whatever it's worth in the simple sort of statements is that the, the, those military regimes are fairly widely discredited across Africa, right? I mean, the promise, there was so much support, including scholarly support. The idea was, you know, all modernization theory was, well, we're going we're gonna to have to have economic growth, and that'll lead to social change, and that'll lead to more, you know, education and secularized societies, et cetera, and then you'll get demands for democratization. And what Africa got, at least, is specifically in the African context by 1990, is increased poverty, increased, uh, you know, I mean, Africa in 1990 is significantly poor almost everywhere than it was at independence, right? So no democracy and no development and no modernization. And those regimes are really quite, quite severely discredited. And even in, in the early 1990s, you did get a little nostalgia in this, in this early period where it, was all, where it seemed chaotic, right? People sort of juxtaposed, said democracy means chaos, and maybe we're better off with military regime than chaos. So it was a little bit of nostalgia. I'm, I'm sort of interested in the fact that that's largely dissipated. Um, you get the occasional nostalgia for the military regimes, for the law and order aspect of it. But I think they were, they're very largely discredited. Clearly, there's very little outside support in the way there was in the Cold War, very simply, right? You, you know, Mobutu could stay forever as long as he claimed to be an anti-communist in Central Africa and fighting the communists in Angola, et cetera, whatever. Um, so there's, no, there's very little outside support for it. Um, yeah. And, so if the regime is discredited, couldn't the theory say that economic development were to have democracy 
Yeah, I think it is. I think these countries are discrediting that, yes. <laughs> I think these countries are discrediting it spectacularly. I mean, what I, what, what, I like to say, what I like to say about these three is that if you made a list of the things that political scientists said were correlated with democracy, historically, right, look back at the literature over the last 50 years, these countries have none of it, right? I mean, poor, black, African, underdeveloped, uh, uh, multi-ethnic, uh, you know, Muslim, for those who think that, that's um, uh, post-colonial, you know, um, uh, a legacy of authoritarianism. They have... None of the, and especially economic development. And there they are, you know, moving along. <laughs> well, on the context, you say the best definition for democracy in that case is the government for the people, by the people, and of the people, because it's reflecting the people. Right. Democracy is where it's working Right. Well, I think that is that exact term gets all, that, that phrase also gets quoted to me. It's quite amazing and interesting how these religious groups have learned this vocabulary of democracy, and they say exactly quote, quote that exactly um, that you know American slogan and say that's that's what we want, and that's and that means that we should have a government and laws and states that is by the people and for the people and of the whatever the, all the prepositions are. So, in other words, that it reflects the people, right? That's what we want. Um, the answer. Uh, you know, that the Democrats say is yes, but there are boundaries. And you can't, you know, uh, ev you know, you can't enslave a part of the population. If people said we don't want some people to vote, right, or women can't vote, that's not democratic. No, even if the majority of people, including women, voted for it, that wouldn't be democratic, et cetera. So they, and that's, that was my point about that. It's sort of the very underlying philosophical issues that in some ways are being negotiated. I think they're constantly negotiating. I think that is democracy. I mean, I think your, your point is right. That is democracy, right? It's, it's not about solving those issues. It's about negotiating. We're constantly negotiating right now in the U.S. on, on exactly on sexuality and gender issues, right? Um, and is that, you know, where's that boundary? Is it, can, we, can we decide collectively one way or the other, and is that the answer? Or is there some sort of a yardstick of democracy? Are we going to be oh, forever undemocratic as long as we ban or allow gay marriage, according to your position, right? Um, I think we have one more question here, and that'll be the okay. last question. Yeah, you know, I know a lot less about them. The question, I don't know if you all heard it, is about some of the other less democratic states, whether some of these, whether some of these debates are taking place. Um, um, places like Mauritania, which had a brief effort at democracy in the last few years. Um, you know, I don't know about family law in Mauritania. I can tell you that in both Mauritania and Chad, for example, the, the uh, educational reforms are taking place also. And that's, that's something that I think is driven. So at your, your, your point, I think, is maybe some of these things are being driven by things other than the fact that these countries have embraced democracy, right? Or at least that's, that's an, an implication of your question. And, and that may be the case, yeah, just to some extent. So there is some kind of debate now. Uh, Mauritania, of course, is the one country in Africa which is, well, Sudan is a special case, but that from independence was officially an Islamic republic. It was a peculiar Islamic republic since it thought of itself as a secular Islamic republic, sort of like Pakistan, right? Originally, the idea was it's going to a state for Muslims, not about Islamic law. Um, so to some extent, family law is a, is a big debate, but um, everywhere. The one interesting case that I can think of comparable is Morocco. Uh, where, you know, Morocco, of course, is not a democracy. It's a monarchy, but it's a monarchy that's experimented with efforts at some kinds of democracy. And they actually had a huge debate in that process of uh, uh, family law and actually passed the family code um, the last few years, which is seen as sort of a, a democratic, a progressive code, I guess. So, yeah, uh, that's not a very satisfactory answer, but it's often there. Yeah. Leo, thank you very much for a very nuanced view of uh, Islam in West Africa. Thank you all. I hope
it was more or less, I tried to cover a huge terrain and a lot of countries and a lot of issues. So I hope you got it. The big picture was there. Thank you.